as we open up this podcast, I'd like to formally file an appeal. I'd like to protest the Big Ten divisions as a prior conversation really brought to light a major issue. Could be a clerical error. I don't think it's clerical error, but it's definitely a major issue, and I'm calling I'm calling BS on it. So as uh, the listeners are very well aware, we are pretty big IU fans, Indiana University fans. This half. Not like the Hoosier hysterics, not like those couple guys uh, who have maybe like two more followers than us, uh, but a lot <laughs> less swag and coolness. Uh, but this is, this is terrible. This is not right. I mean, IU football, yeah, they need all the help they can get, but this is... This is contrary to that. So I'm looking at the rankings, having a conversation or a debate of the East versus West division of the Big Ten. And, of course, all those in the West, except for Iowa and maybe Wisconsin, are saying, oh, you're going to gonna make that argument again. But yeah, because look at this. We, so, didn't, think, we didn't say Wisconsin. Where are they ranked? Uh, in the top 25? They're not in top 25. I don't think oh, they wow, are anymore. I'm surprised. But, okay, so there's Iowa. At 6-0 in the West, leading the Big Ten overall, obviously leading the Western Division, ranked number two in the country. IU played them, lost. Number three in the country, Cincinnati. IU played them, lost. Uh, number five, uh, sorry, number six in the country, Ohio State. That's next week. Number seven in the country, Penn State, <laughs> lost. I think I actually got shut out, didn't we? Yes. God, it's not close enough. Details are important right now. Yeah, slightly anemic offense. Uh, number eight in the country, Michigan. I mean, that should have an asterisk, I'm just saying, but still. Uh, and then number 10 in the country, tomorrow's opponent for Indiana, which is also homecoming, Michigan State. That's poor scheduling. There's no one else to play. I mean, that's like not, that's almost your entire six, Eastern Division. Six teams in the top 10. Take Rutgers and Maryland. Maryland. Take Rutgers and Maryland out of the equation. Who else do you have? Well, so so that's when the IU guys at this point say, okay, look at our schedule. It's awful. You schedule the homecoming at the Purdue game because, well, we'll still that's beat you, but year. at least you have a shot. I'm, I'm just saying that something got, like, I think there was a, a mix-up with the paperwork, maybe a cover letter. It wasn't on the TPS report. Something <laughs> was messed up. I, really, if they want to keep, I understand it might be too late. Kudos to the Big Ten for having that many teams in the top ten. Unfortunately, they're all in the same division. All on the same or, side. Yes, same only one of those are coming mm-hmm. up now. When bowl season comes about and they play SEC schools, we'll just see how how valid those rankings were. But true, I, I just I think it's probably too late to redo the schedule mid year. I get that a lot of hotels been booked, etc. Um, <laughs> I mean, among other things. Uh, but I do think that to make it right, they could decrease for Indiana and really Indiana only because they're the ones right there sort of in the middle. Uh, they should decrease the bowl eligibility requirement to like three games, three victories. I think that would solve a lot of problems. And that would have given them a chance over the last 50 years to make some bowl games in there. That would have been good. No, I'm not, we're not looking backwards. Oh, okay. Just no, I mean, forwards. except for last year. We're looking at last year because that's like our <laughs> – so I just, that's that. I mean, that is a brutal schedule. That's brutal. I mean, it is what it is, right? Yeah. You want to be one of the best, you got to beat the best. But tailgates are still good. Yeah. yeah. 
Anyway. <laughs> so uh, I don't even know where else to go with that. Other yeah. Than, yeah, that, that pretty much explains well, we'll, it. We'll just go with Purdue is awful. Everybody's injured. We have two wins, one over the possibly the worst team in college football right now in UConn. Okay. Which I don't even know if that counts as a win. That's like playing a high school team because they're W's a W. If we win forty nine to zero, you're obviously really, really bad. <laughs> Maybe Gino should coach them. It's he'd probably do a better job. Well, we got the game right after Randy Etzel retired unexpectedly. Uh, so another so leg up. Speaking of Purdue and and you are a graduate of Purdue University. Somehow. Um they play Iowa tomorrow, correct? Yes. Okay. Where? In Iowa. Okay. Is Purdue going to go, or are they just like going to say, hey, we'll just mark this down and stay home? I think half the team will travel just so that we don't forfeit. So one of our uh, team members is a huge Iowa fan. Is there is there a wager? Has a wager been placed? Who's the Iowa fan? Chad. Oh, I did not realize. Yeah. No. And no, I mean, he, he wants to give me about 35 points. We can talk. <laughs> Perhaps. That might be a better shot. Okay, so I have a question for you. Tell me what a Boilermaker is. Well, there's two of them. Oh. One is a train, because it boils the water for the steam to make the steam engine go. Or the better one is where you have a beer and you drop a shot of whiskey in it. Uh, so which one was the mascot named after? Probably the beer, but they put the train on it for optics. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Now, does everyone that goes to Purdue look like Purdue Pete? Because he's a pretty svelte dude. Although, massive noggin. Like, has anyone recognized how big his head is? <laughs> yes. And did you see the article before the season where they voted on the top 10 most terrifying or ugly? I can't remember which one mascots. And we were, of course, number one. Because if you get up close to that thing, it does feel like his eyes are sucking well, he's, out your soul. It's got a <laughs> massive head, and the eyes are creepy. Oh, yeah. Very creepy. For the record, I did a tour at Purdue last week with my daughter. Oh. And, uh, yeah. That's all I'll say. That was just to be, you're not actually going to let that happen. That was just to be nice, right? Got to see some options just in case. <clears throat> we'll be in Bloomington next week. I mean, I love Mitch Daniels. Yeah. But that's the only thing I can say positive about Purdue. Sorry. That's, <laughs> we, with my kids, too, they're, still, they're younger than your uh, children thus far, but... Their teachers are all IU, of course, um, in school. So anytime they go in, they always come back, Dad, our teacher is an IU teacher. It's like, well, sweetie, that's okay. We know what we say to those people. You're a really good teacher. Boo IU on the first day, and then we leave it alone after that. Say, okay. <laughs> well, you know what? I think we, we can both agree on one thing. There's always basketball season. There is always basketball season. Yeah. <laughs> that is correct. Well, well, we'll get into basketball here before long. I think... Sadly, we're already anticipating that coming up, but, you know, I guess like, kind of like the Cubs of old, it's always next year. Yeah. Um. Uh, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Industrious Podcast. If you have not done so already and you're tuning in via YouTube, 
Make sure you like the video, hit the subscribe button, and uh, also click that notification bell if you would. I'd like to welcome our guest today, Mr. Brian Gould. Good morning. Otherwise known as Goldie. I don't know if that's because of the Purdue reference or the, the last name reference. Um, Either way, it works. Either way. It plays. Yeah. Yep. And, and, and I will say Purdue will come up yet again in this episode, but you're welcome, Boilermakers. Boiler up. That's what, yeah. Well done. Right on cue. Brian, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to the audience, if you would? Sure. Uh, I'm Brian Gould. been uh, with Assessa now just over six years, handling the uh, Perfection Electrostatic Paint Line. Um, grew up in the Fort Wayne area, just north of here in the southwest side of Fort Wayne. The Fort. The Fort. Uh, always liked doing the Matt Anthony's tournament. I caddied that a few times. That was super fun to have somebody's... Uh, 400 pound bag that you had to lug around Sycamore Hills. Um, and then you make $20 and go about your day after six <laughs> hours of work. Um, but two younger sisters, normal, normal family. Um, nothing really exceptional out of there. Um, I was normal like, family, normal family. Oh, I don't, gosh, you should meet mine. <laughs> I all. have part of it. After we're done, I'll tell you about uh, my sister. She's so fairly normal. My brother. Oh, you, he's got some stories. Okay. Oh, I didn't see you sitting there. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a divider? It's a COVID Is wall. It, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. Yes. All right, proceed. Um, but where'd you go to high school in Fort Wayne? Went to Homestead. Homestead. Okay. Our, where I grew up is about a mile and a half from there. I know okay. some folks from Homestead. Yeah. I could definitely tell you some stories. I bet you probably could. <laughs> <laughs> um. So then what? I know you, we all, as we already discussed, you went to Purdue. What what drove you to Purdue? And did you look anywhere else? Probably a car. Maybe a bus. He beat me to it. I wasn't going to say Ow. it. But, okay. Um, actually, because I, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I graduated high school. I was one of those. It was kind of just, yeah, we'll go to school. And I had a bunch of friends that were going to Purdue, so I applied there. Um, got accepted somehow. Not still... Not quite sure how we got there or how we got out, but it all worked itself out. Um, but I always knew that I wanted to kind of was leaning at that time for something sciency. That was always I was always better at that than a language type uh, major. So it just kind of made sense to go to Purdue at that time, um, and then got in from there and did a bunch of different um, activities and then got into the industrial distribution program, which is kind of a hodgepodge of sales, um, shipping, receiving, all that kind of stuff, um, inventory management, things like that. But as just an overall arcing kind of major. So it really fit kind of everything since I still didn't know what I wanted to do to be an overall type major, which suited my, my style. Yeah. So you graduate from Purdue, um, industrial distribution degree, and and then what? Then I was actually, I've had a long, sordid career there. There were, uh, went to work for my dad for a little while. That's actually when this opportunity came up, I was so keen on doing it. So my dad ran some small businesses throughout my early years and then through college doing, uh, uh, custom t-shirts and embroidery and, and things like that. So mm -hmm. all mostly custom work, some pretty generic, but not, nothing too extreme with all the businesses around Fort Wayne, you know, doing all of the, the shirts and right, things. Yeah. Um, 
And so I did sales for him, then ended up moving down to Indianapolis and kind of wanting to take a break, I guess. You're at that point in your life where it's like, okay, well, I've done four years of work. I want to take a little break. So I actually got a job at a restaurant, worked at Scotty's Brewhouse before it went defunct. Mm-hmm. Um, and worked there, you know, selling the food, taking a little bit of a break. And then I ended up working for Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Not too many good memories of Enterprise. Um, it's very long hours, very little pay. Yeah. Um, but from there, then I went and uh, moved the family to Ohio, where we worked with a um, worked for ASK Chemical, which is a foundry chemical division of used to be old Ashland Chemical, but they have were in the process while I was there of being sold off, so they split it off as its own entity. And then this opportunity came up after that. And here we are. Yeah. So, Brian, you've been with us for how long now? Just over six years. Six, six in okay. July. Um, you've had your hands in a few things that we do. Um, obviously, the perfection line, or the electrostatic line, really kind of being the, the bulk of it or the focus at this point in time. Um, if you would, so I guess, quick background first. So the perfection electrostatic paint line uh, was originally... Uh, developed by Lilly Industrial Coatings back in the day. Um, they were subsequently acquired by Valspar. And then at some point, a few years after that, um, we were the kind of the master distributor, really. Or we, we were the master distributor throughout North America of that line and ultimately acquired that, uh, the, the trade name and, and all that from them. Um, and you know it's it's a it's a it's a brand of ours you know of assessors today. Um, why don't you give a quick overview of the line itself? What all products are uh, or make up that line, if you will? Sure. So, as we have our nice display here, yeah. we've got a couple of them on the table. But to start with primers, um, we have our Universal Enviro Prime, um, which is a single component, white, can be slightly tinted, Universal Primer, easy to use. Um, we have a two-component Enviropoxy primer, gray, really good barrier coat, really good on controlling all of your your pieces. Yeah, good uh, for corrosion resistance as absolutely. well, Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Thank you. That's what I, the word I was looking for, and I couldn't find it. <laughs> um, and then for top coats, we have single component. We've got Enviro-Namel, which is single part, easy to use. We like to use it for demos, um, easy cleanup. Um, our Envirothane, two-part acrylic urethane product, which is really good for everything anything that you want that's good um and then we have our Enviropoxy top coat which is real good if you're in an indoor environment right now our enviro line Mm -hmm. um which has been out for several years now but it's more of a 2.8 voc haps free or haps compliant i guess i should say um product line we still have the conventional line as well but would you say the enviro line is kind of the the workhorse at this point in time absolutely um really where the the conventional line comes into play is down in our southern florida miami slash fort lauderdale markets is one of we do have some customers across the country that have been using it for so long that they have it in their mind that nothing else will work so they stick with the same products that they've always used but yeah no the and if we go to new customers or anybody calls in the enviro enviro line is where we go sure so let me ask a question. We, we see that the, the 
brand name of the product family is Perfection Electrostatic Paint. Uh, when we talk about the word electrostatic, what makes this paint any different from any other coating that you'd say, oh, I've got industrial application going on metal, whether it be indoor, outdoor, whatever it may be. What's the difference between just going and buying any industrial coating versus the Perfection Electrostatic Paint line? So to jump back from that just a little bit, so there is electrostatic equipment as well. So if you're talking on the same vein, we have conventional spray equipment and electrostatic spray equipment. When you talk about electrostatic spray equipment, to get the electrostatics to work, they are built to what refer to as a resistivity range. So then once you have the equipment that has a certain range, the paint must fall within that range, that resistivity range, or it won't spray electrostatically. It'll still spray conventionally but you won't get the wrap that you want to coat your parts. So that's the biggest thing is every single time you open up a can of our paint, it is in that resistivity range and it is ready to go. Okay. So, uh, in somewhat layman's terms, the resistivity range, what you're talking about is the, the electrostatic equipment and there's a variety or a range of that equipment. Some that are a hundred percent electrostatic in terms of how it atomizes the paint. And for those who are saying, what are you talking about? Atomization means how do you take the liquid in the can and turn it into very, very tiny particles of liquid or droplets of liquid to then get on the part. So just like if you're at home and you've got a can of spray paint and you depress the button and it sprays out a fine mist, that is the atomized paint. So some equipment is 100% electrostatic atomization and then as you come back down the scale towards more conventional, which would be essentially purely air atomization or air pressure, forcing the gun or the paint through the gun, you've got different ranges of electrostatic or combinations of electrostatic and air and so on. Um, and when you talk about wrap, so what you're telling us is that the gun puts a charge in the paint. Correct. And different a positive and a negative, right? Cause opposites attract. This is like, no, not technically. So the paint actually is, is along with the resistivity range. It is ready. It's essentially ready to receive the electrostatic charge and it's a negative charge. And then the piece that you're trying to paint such as a fence or a light post or, um, any type of metal and awning, things like that is grounded. grounded so it's yeah. essentially it's zero, neutral. right? Yeah. So it's pulling that negative charge paint, which it's, our paint is ready to receive that charge and different paints have different ranges. So if it's not ready to receive that charge, as you alluded to earlier with the atomization, if you don't get the particles, the right size and things like that, it still can't receive the charge as much as you would want it to. So in the case of a Randsburg number two equipment, which is the oldest electrostatic piece of equipment on the, on the market, as you uh, alluded to earlier with the hundred percent transfer efficiency, they say 98%. I think they like to leave the 2% just to make sure it creates those particles. Like you said, so fine that every one of those particles picks up that charge. And that's why it is so effective at taking our paint and putting it on the part exactly where you want it to go. Okay. A great example of that is, and there's an older video on the Assessor YouTube channel, mm -hmm. But the old school, this goes back to the Vince senior days where you would have a, let's say a fence post like this, hang the white sheet behind it, paint once, you know, from one angle of, on the post, 
and two things. One, you look at the sheet, see little to virtually no paint overspray on it, and the back side of that post has been mm -hmm. painted. Uh, so if you haven't seen that video, check it out. It's 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 pretty cool if you've never never seen it. So that's but, what you mean by wrap. Correct. That paint yes. That doesn't hit the part that goes off the side. Literally wraps around Wicker the part Wicker. to coat the backside. Correct. Not the remix version. Right. But the original, <laughs> the OG version. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Essentially what you're doing. So in that same piece of equipment, the Ransberg, and like you said, there's different with that Ransberg and the reason it's so effective, instead of pushing that paint with the air or the fluid pressure, like you were talking about, it's essentially flinging the paint. Um, and I was going to allude to the videos as well. It's hard to, yeah. to talk about it if people can't see it. Um, it, but it makes a really effective demo when you see it either in person. The videos can do a, a bit, but you see it You're in probably, person. You're primarily it's, referring to the number two gun with the spinning bell on the end. Correct. Yeah. Yes, thank what's, you. What's cool about that, mm -hmm. and having seen it in person and obviously the videos, is that in most cases when you talk about atomization and the particulate size being so fine, you can't actually see the paint from the end of the gun to the part flying through the air. You can't visually see the paint. All you see is the part changing color, and that's actually pretty cool. It's like a magic show. It's really, yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, and just just so we can clarify, we're talking about liquid paint here, folks. I know in the powder world, they also it's also applied electrostatically, um, and oftentimes I see from a marketing standpoint, people use the term electrostatic specifically as an all encompassing term for powder, but that's not necessarily the case. You can't electrostatically apply liquid coatings which is what we're talking about here and do so without ovens to bake it. True. Which is why it's such a big on-site tool. Mm -hmm. um, so we talk, we just spent a moment there talking about what the ledge stack means in terms of the paint and wrap and transfer efficiency, which transfer efficiency means that if 60% of the paint that I'm spraying lands on the part, then I have a 60% transfer efficiency, efficient paint which means 40% of the paint I sprayed just evaporated up into the atmosphere. So I lost 40% of my product in terms of waste. Uh, and you mentioned the number two gun, the Ransberg number two gun, which is the sort of the benchmark electrostatic equipment on the market has, as they note, 98%. We just would say, as long as it's not windy out, you essentially have hundred percent transfer efficiency, which means you have zero paint waste. Uh, tell, can you tell us why, why that's important? Why is the wrap, the efficiency, et cetera, why does that make a difference versus just going out and buying some regular paint, putting it through a regular gun? So as we say, so the, the two biggest things with the electrostatic that we try to go over with customers is really the, the one that you just hit on with the transfer efficiency. You buy a gallon of the paint, have the right equipment, the paint will go where you want it to go. So there's no waste barring conditions, but in general, no waste. So sure. You might pay $25 for a regular can of paint, but if you only get 25% transfer efficiency, that's four gallons to one of ours with the right equipment. This becomes a big deal when you're painting projects such as condo railings, where you don't want the paint to go everywhere because there's cars around the building itself. You don't want to have to mask everything off like you would if you were going out with a conventional type yeah. spray equipment. I don't think cruise ships like a lot of overspray either. And cruise ships <laughs> do not like overspray either. And my goodness, to mask that thing would be a project. Yeah. 
So um, by lim- limiting the amount of masking, you, obviously you're saving on material cost, but more importantly, you're saving on time, correct. labor, which is the, the bulk of the cost of any job. Yep, and that's the number one, the, the biggest one is is the time saving, the the crew. I mean, if you have to have a guy hold up a sheet because you're painting conventionally, well, you have to have two guys, to one on each end to hold up the sheet, and then you have a painter and you've probably got at least one or two preppers. Most of the crews that, that we've seen across the years and different crews run it a little bit differently depending on how quickly they need to move. But usually you've got a painter and a prepper. So you got to, you know, somebody's working ahead of you to prep the areas and you got a guy coming in behind them to either prime it or top coat it. And that's, that's your crew. You can send them out to do work like that. Yeah. Now imagine the benefits when we're doing large office buildings and they're, they're redoing the window mullions on the outside of a building mm-hmm. 40 stories up on a swing, you know, hanging down on the swing stage, mm-hmm. how many people you can fit on there to try and adequately do that. Yeah. And in this case, you have your two guys, one's prepping and one's painting. So it makes it, makes it really so easy. It's a good segue. What would you say are the primary uses for the, for this proc line? Sure. Um, primary uses, anything metal that you want that other than large flat surfaces, um, so if you're talking railings, we're talking um, awnings, we're talking, we have a lot of people that do light poles through neighborhoods. You know, everybody have all the light poles at the corners, however many they have to have. They wear down over time. They need to be repainted just like anything else. Um, but one of our largest markets would be the Florida market. I mean, one thing about Florida, they have sand and hurricanes. And the paint's going to wear down over time in really salty air, which also yeah. helps to eat away at some of those coatings. So we do a a lot of work in those areas or um, school lockers. We do have a lot of guys that do a lot of school lockers. Um, office, redoing office furniture. A lot of, re- so a lot of uh, our customers have an outside application and then an inside application. So their outside application are doing those railing type jobs or hotels and window mullions and things. And then they have the inside, depending on where you are in the country, I guess, because then right. some people have winter like us. Where then in the winter, they're doing the repainting office furniture and patio furniture and things like that. Elevator doors. Elevator doors, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Grocery encasements or whatever mm-hmm. they call it, the refrigeration units. Yeah. Yes. Groceries. Yes. A lot of grocery stores. A lot of epoxy and grocery stores, yes. Um, so in, in prior podcasts, we've talked to, to different suppliers and, and we've talked a lot about our OEM environment. So our coatings going into a manufacturing process where somebody's manufacturing a widget of some sort, wood, metal, plastic, and they're using liquid coatings or chemicals in their manufacturing process. This is different. This is a different channel and different, um, I won't say end user, but different customer type in that these aren't people that are the OEM. These are people that are doing a lot of refurbishment. And so we would call them professional contractors. There are, there are painters out there, there are professional painters out there that certainly would not meet our criteria of, of qualification for electric application, both the equipment, the paint, and of course, then ultimately the job, uh, which is where we kind of, in our world, how that's how we define professional contractor, because mm-hmm. it takes someone who really, you know, has a certain level to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or in, you know, in the case, like when we're out doing demos and things, you know, we're meeting with the owners generally. So we try to clarify at that point how important it is to have somebody that you can trust working our product and the equipment. The equipment's expensive. 
the paint to go in it, the same, but it does what it's supposed to do. So at that point, we have to make sure that they understand that if you, you can't just send anybody out to do these things, it has to be somebody that you can trust. And a lot of the guys, you know, they say, okay, well, I've got, you know, Tom over here, I think is really good. He's been with me a long time. I think if we got this, we can essentially, like you were talking, create another segment for themselves where, hey, we've only been doing this type of painting. Why aren't we doing this type of painting? Um, as they run across specs where it says, hey, we need a regular bid and an electrostatic bid. It behooves them to have both because then essentially they're not trying to bid on half. Right. So it makes a lot more sense for them over the long term to say, okay, we've got the rest of this, but why are we letting somebody else come in to do the railings for us when we could just do the building and the railings? Yeah. Which helps them differentiate their business then as well. Yeah, certainly. One of the other differences with this product line versus some of our other uh, coatings products or chemicals products for that matter, instead of, while we do sell some direct to the end user, um, this is a big market for us to go through sub distribution. Uh, maybe just briefly mention like how how that's set up and 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 what does that look like? Yeah, maybe without using customer names, but what? Yeah. How does this channel work? Sure. So what we try to do then is because we try to sell this across the country. So what I am trying to do is find distributors across the country that have salespeople that are as excited as we are to sell our product into different markets. Um, some were already existing and you're trying to grow those and, and create extra. And then we have some where it's brand new markets. So we really have to drill in, talk to the right people, make sure that we can, like I said, they're as excited to sell this extra avenue as we are. Um, but I think a lot of people see the value of bringing in our product that works because either at some point over their their lifespan they've ran into electrostatic where they've either tried to use one of their products and they say yeah, yeah, yeah no this other division put this thing together and gave it to the customer and i say well does it work every time that you use it well it, about 75 percent i say well that that's not 100 percent, and that's what ours does and it just makes it easy on you where you just tint the product to the color that you want and send it out to the customer and then you don't get the follow-up phone call that says, hey, I, I can't get this thing to work, which we try to make it easy on people is what my biggest thing is try to make it. The electrostatic process looks difficult. It doesn't have to be. No, um, I mean, I think that what you just said, we try to make it easy is sort of a, that's synonymous across all of our product lines. Our customers, our applicators, whether they be in an OEM environment or out on a job site, or wherever they may be, shouldn't have to think about the paint. They should just be able to pop the top, do what they need to do, and and go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. I believe what we sell in, is peace of mind in the can. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And that's alluding to that earlier. And you had meant I'd mentioned two things earlier, and I only said one, so I'll jump back just a little bit. The other thing, the biggest thing for our product too, is with the electrostatic process and with our paint, you're getting a finish that looks like a it came from a powder coater or whatnot, but you didn't have to take it out, send it in, reinstall it. You can do it on site. Mm -hmm. So that's the other thing with that, where the ease of use is. It's not just the application that's easy. It's the finish that you get with it too, that just looks pristine. Well, and some safety concerns too. I mean, mm -hmm. If you're not using our product and you're trying to use someone else's and let's call it heat it up to make it work electrostatically. Make it hot. 
there's some there's some issues with that. If I throw some acetone in here, <laughs> I can get it where I need it to be. But I'm not thinking the acetone has a negative four degree flash point, and I didn't ground my part because I don't really know what I'm doing because I'm cutting corners, and now I have a discharge of static electricity, kind of like in the wintertime when you shuffle your feet across the carpet, and then you go and touch someone and shock them. Well, that shock was now a point of ignition. Yeah, and usually then as they're cutting the corners – they're supposed to add one ounce of this and one ounce of that. And instead they do a cap full, which I've never seen a measurement on a cap, but everybody tells me that, well, I just add a cap full. Well, how much is that? It's a cap well, full. It's a cap full. That's just a measurement in everybody's <laughs> well, see, eyes, but not mine. Cause I don't know what the that problem means. is. That's the metric system. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm not familiar. Yeah. yeah totally. <laughs> we talked about the, the markets. Um, it's probably good segue. Uh, we actually have some new products coming out in the professional electrostatic paint line. Um, product that's out now is the what we call the Envirothane DTM. So what what makes it unique from the current Envirothane is it, it's actually a little even a little bit lower than VOC, but more importantly, it's um, formulated to work DTM, which means direct to metal. So we actually had a few uh, OEM customers approach us uh, with an opportunity that that was uh, kind of the catalyst, uh, no pun intended, for um, developing this product. Uh, and, it, and it so far, um, all test results have looked pretty, pretty damn phenomenal. Uh, so I think it'll be interesting to see the market, um, how it reacts to this, the different avenues that people can utilize. Now, I would say if you're a current user and you're currently using the, you know, the Enviropoxy primer with the Envirothane top coat, uh, in a lot of cases, I wouldn't just say, oh, sweet, I can stop using the, the, the primer now and just go with the top coat. I think overall, you'll with the, with the two-part system, you'll still get better corrosion resistance. So if, if, if your market demands corrosion resistance, I would probably stick with that. Um, but it does open up uh, um, avenues to, to other markets that uh, we may currently not be in um, having this DTM option. Um, so stay tuned. Go to, go to the Assessor website if you want more details on that um, or contact Brian and he'll be happy to get you more info. Uh, and then pending is what we call the, the Novo line and the Novo standing for no VOC. So this will be a line of urethane products called the Envirothane Novo um, as well as a separate set of primers. And all of these are either zero VOC or near, near zero VOC. Uh, so the cool thing about that is while still solvent-based, um, high-performing products and products that now we can take into certain markets that currently um, have have in, uh, environmental restrictions that don't allow, certainly don't allow the conventional line, but in some cases don't even allow the, the current Enviro line. Um, so I'll be excited about going into those markets and having some offerings there. And I know you've already been looking into that. Very excited, yeah. No, I think uh, both of them, I think, I mean, we have as you talked about earlier, Joe, the OEM applications with a, with a DTM. I mean, we see a lot of OEMs where they don't want to do the multi-step process to get where they want. We want to, it needs to be painted. The, it just needs to be painted. Okay. Yeah, we don't want to use a primer. Correct. It's just an extra step where they have to get an extra set of equipment that they don't want to purchase. And I think that can really fill in that void of no problem. We've got something that we can, yeah. that we and can it put not, on. Not only helps them cut out that step. Mm -hmm. So let's say it's, you know, I'm gonna say a widget coming down the line. Let's let's say I had to go through a pre-treatment process, which obviously we can help with too. Um, but instead of doing a primer step and it goes back through the line, it comes around for top coat. Um, it's a single stage top coat, but 
it's not just a paint to look pretty going out the door and then if it falls off in a year no big deal mm -hmm. this this top coat is uh, i mean the performance specs the test results have been pretty damn phenomenal as i said great yeah that's i'm very excited about both of them yeah it's it's very exciting what uh any questions you have for us i didn't know i was being interviewed this well, is the tables have turned <laughs> <laughs> um i don't i don't think so okay. um we talked about the new products i mean that's been my i think my questions to you for the past year is just trying to beat down your door hey where are we at here where are we at where right. are we at um so like i said i'm very very excited about those that's a i think it really can open up some open up open up some big doors for us to to move forward with some different avenues which is great yeah no, we we agree we're excited about it as well and um obviously want to make sure all the ducks are in a row first but we're excited to get this rolled out as well mm -hmm. all right well thanks everyone for tuning in to this episode of the industrious podcast um if you are again watching via the assessor youtube channel make sure you like this episode hit the subscribe button and click on that notification bell so you can be alerted when new episodes drop in the future and be industrious see ya bye